Well, as I said, we're going to be in Mark 10 here for a number of weeks. Um, in many ways, this is really a, a fascinating text. You know, as we said last week, Jesus' interactions with this rich young ruler was extremely unusual. This man was part of the Jewish religious establishment. He comes to Jesus genuinely seeking guidance on how he should live his life. But in the end, he rejects Jesus' words and walk away from Jesus grieving because he can't do what Jesus asks. And yet the scripture tells us that Jesus loved this man. In many ways, there's a lot to admire about this man. He's obviously a high achiever. He works hard at everything. He wants to be the best he can be in everything he does. You know, in that culture, most likely he had a good start in life, inheriting wealth from his parents. But he also probably increased his wealth significantly and worked hard at managing his resources. But aside from that, he was also a moral man portion because he pursued Jesus with a passion. He wanted to know sincerely if he needed to change anything in his life. You know, when Jesus quotes the last six commandments about how we relate to other people, this man declares that he had always lived with honesty and integrity, seeking to obey the commandments. He wasn't boasting. He was simply asserting that he had tried to live a good life. But even beyond that, he was not just concerned about this present life. He had a deep, deep concern for what comes after this life. He was concerned about heaven and eternity and being welcomed into heaven by God. He was wanting to know if there was anything that he needed to change in his life in order to please God. So he really had a deep sense of morality, was searching for what is right. He was honorable man in so many ways. And Jesus loved him because he was sincere, as we talked about last week. This text is really about something, about sin, even though that word is never used in these verses. Now, sin in many ways is a completely foreign concept in our culture today, and is often misunderstood even in the church. You almost never hear anyone talking about sin out in the world around us. And quite frankly, it's not talked about a lot in churches today. And why is that? There's a number of reasons, I think. Our culture believes that there is no absolute moral or religious truth. Each person has to determine what is right for their own lives. That's why people believe that all religions are the same. No one is more true than any other. If I can determine what's right for my life, then I'm never breaking any moral code. There is no sin. Furthermore, our culture and our cultural uh, leaks tend to believe that everyone is good. Sin, bad behavior and evil only happens because of the broken world, the bad experiences, the lack of resources or the lack of love that people experience. Bad things happen not because of human nature, but because of the lack of nurture in people's lives, because of the bad things that happen to them in this world. You know, as individuals, we never want to think of ourselves as a bad person. We want to think of ourselves as a good person. And that's understandable. And that's what this rich young ruler is thinking. He's heard about Jesus, about his teaching, about how he has healed people, about how he treats everyone with respect. And so he comes running to Jesus saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's kind of saying this, Jesus, you're a good person, and, and I am, so is there anything more I can do 
so that I can even be a better person and be welcomed into heaven. And even in the church, I think at times we tend to have a very shallow understanding of what sin is. We see sin as simply breaking one of God's rules. And sin is so much more than simply breaking a rule. If that's our view of sin, I don't think we'll ever fully appreciate the cross. This text suggests that sin is something much more profound than simply breaking one of the commandments. It's something much deeper. Jesus doesn't directly answer the man's question right away. So he, he goes back to the man with his own question first and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know, even though Jesus saw this man's sincerity and he loved him, he also knew that there was something this man needed to hear and confront. Sincerity is not enough. Sincerity will not get a person to heaven. You can be sincerely wrong. And so Jesus is coming at this man. He wants to teach this man and us today something very important about foundational, about what faith is really all about. So today I want to ask three questions. What does Jesus mean by good? What does this Jesus tell us about sin? And what are the implications for how we live? First, what does Jesus mean by good? You know, when this man addressed Jesus as good teacher, he was doing something extremely unusual for the religious Jews of his day. Nowhere in any Jewish literature or writings of the rabbis is anyone ever referred to as good. If you read through the Old Testament, God, only God is referred to as good. No man or person is referred to as good. That's why our response to reading today was about the goodness of God. First Chronicles 16, 13, 4, which we read, kind of is a perfect example of Jewish thought when it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. He alone is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. God is always good. He doesn't change. His character, His thoughts, His actions are unchanging. They're always good and rooted in His love and mercy. But this man was saying something different. He had heard about Jesus. He had heard about how he cared for everyone and healed many. He heard about Jesus' amazing teaching. He's thinking this Jesus is really an exceptionally good person, so he wants to see if there's anything he can learn about what it means to live a good life. The rich young ruler is assuming that he is a good person also. And so after all, when Jesus quotes the six commandments about how you treat people, the last six of the ten, you know, he said that he has diligently strived to keep all those commandments. And Jesus, in many ways, was really testing him in that. Because the last commandment, that's part of the ten, is you shall not covet your neighbor's property with pride. But he changes that and says to this man, um, do not defraud. And because, why? Because this is a rich man. He really has all that he wants. He doesn't covet anybody else's property or anything else. And it's often assumed that if you're that wealthy, that maybe you have defrauded. If you go through and read the prophets in the Old Testament, one of God's critique of his people and the rich were that they mistreated the poor, that they took advantage of them, that they weren't honest in their dealings. And so he asks this man, you know, have you defrauded? And this man basically says, no, all my business dealings have been honest and upfront. I've treated my laborers, my servants, the way they're supposed to be. So his sincerity comes through because he honestly wants to know if there's anything else he can do that would make him even a better person. 
He's determining ultimately what it means to be good by comparing himself to other people and what they do. You see Jesus as exceptionally good person. So he approaches him thinking he can learn something from him. I have no doubt he looked at many of his contemporaries and realized that they obtained some of their wealth dishonestly, like the tax collectors or some of the landowners that took advantage of their servants and their tenant farmers. His concept of goodness, human goodness, is based upon what people do, what we do by our external actions. You know, am I a kind and thoughtful person? Do I respect others and seek to treat them well? I don't act arrogantly or rudely. Do I show some kindness to people who are struggling and going through tough times? Do I work hard to provide for and care for my family? Am I a good spouse, a good parent? Am I honest in my financial dealings, paying my taxes, paying my employees fairly? Do I seek to be a law-abiding citizen? If I'm doing those things, then I must be a pretty good person. How we see ourselves, we usually determine by caring our lives to other people. You know, Nikki Gumbel and the Alpha thing on this made this analogy. It says, you know, I may not be, I don't, I may, I probably, I may not be as good as Mother Teresa, but I'm better than many of the people I hear about in the news, the people who steal and murder or do these other things. I'm a lot better than the neighbor down my street who is a mean, ornery cuss and never has a smile on their face. I'm a lot better than that person who is lazy and doesn't work hard or that person who got hooked on drugs or alcohol or I don't do any of those bad things. Sure, I slip up in some way and I try to make it right and seek to learn from it so I don't do it again, but I'm a pretty okay person. I'm a good person. That's what this man was doing. He was comparing himself to Jesus and thought maybe he could learn something more because Jesus was a good person, but he looked at his own life compared himself to others and thought he was doing pretty good. In that case, goodness is very relative. It depends on who we compare ourselves to. It depends on what standard we use. For the post part, none of us ever want to think of themselves as a, as a bad person. We prefer to think of ourselves as a good person. So we tend to compare ourselves to people who aren't as good as us and we can say to ourselves, I'm pretty okay, I'm a pretty good person. I, I, I live a pretty good life. Jesus understands this man's thinking. So instead of answering his question about eternal life, he comes up with his own rhetorical question. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And in that question, Jesus is pointing out that God's definition of goodness is different than ours. Our definition is very relative. It's based on our own personal view of what is right or wrong, or it's based upon how we compare ourselves to other people. God's definition of goodness is absolute perfection, meaning God does nothing wrong. He always does the right thing. That's why I did some of the readings from, in, from the Old Testament on the goodness of God. You know, here again, Psalm 33, 15 says, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness and steadfast love of the Lord. Goodness implies he's absolutely just and right in everything he does. God's goodness is love that's based on the truth that he only does what is right and just. Psalm 92 says, The Lord is just. He is my rock. There is no evil in him. God does nothing wrong. 
He's absolutely perfect and consistent with his own standards. James confirms this when in the New Testament he tells us, don't be deceived about the goodness and perfection of God. He writes this, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is perfectly good. There is no darkness or evil in him. He never changes. He only does what is good and right. So Jesus is telling in this man that we're not supposed to be comparing ourselves against some human standard or what we personally think is right or wrong or against other people. We are only supposed to be comparing ourselves against God and his standard. He's the creator. He's the almighty one. He's the one who determines what is right and wrong, not us and not anybody else. And if we do that, we'll realize that we can never live up to God's standard. We all fall short. None of us are perfect. So the irony in Jesus' statement is this man sees Jesus as someone who is good. But Jesus is kind of saying to him, if he is good and only God is good, in a way Jesus is saying to this man, he's God. And if he's the creator, he's the one who determines right is wrong. You better really listen to what I have to say. You know, when you think about the trial of Jesus before Pilate, Pilate said what? I find that he's innocent. I find no fault in him. You think about the Roman centurion when Jesus died on the cross and said, surely this man is the son of God. That people around him recognize that he only did good. So when the man tells Jesus that he has obeyed all those commands in his youth, that he has been a good person, Jesus shifts gears. Because he loves this man, Jesus gets very direct with him and tells him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, this is what, what some people call the hard sayings of Jesus. There's a number of sayings that Jesus speaks that are really hard sayings. And, and Jesus in all of these is using hyperbole to make a point. He's not telling the man that he needs to sell everything. He's telling the man that he loves his money more than he loves God. He has a misplaced love. He loves another God, small g, more than he loves the true God, big G. And that's the first commandment. You help love no other gods before me. He worships another God. And the proof is in how he uses his money. So the second question we want to ask is, what does God tell us about sin? Sin is about more than just breaking a rule or some external word we speak or some action we do. Sin is fundamentally about a misplaced love. We don't love God the way we should. It's about what we truly love and value in our heart. Last week, we talked about how God values and judges the heart from this text. He looks past our external actions to see the thoughts and feelings of our heart. So our heart determines who we really are, and the question becomes, who do we really love in our heart, the center of our being? What is our first love? And so all through the gospel, Jesus makes these extreme statements about what it means to follow him, to be his disciple. In an instance, he's using hyperbole to make a point. You know, just after Jesus confesses that Jesus is the Christ, in each gospel, Jesus tells us what it means to follow him. He says, if anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, then the gospel will save it. So Jesus is saying, we have to be his first love. You have to love me more than you love anyone or anything else in your life. Is Jesus saying that we can never have fun or enjoy things in this life? No, of course not. He's making a point to say that the first love of our heart needs to be him. Luke, Jesus makes a couple of different statements about what it means to follow him. Someone said to Jesus, I'll go anywhere with you. And Jesus says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to call his own. Is Jesus saying that you can't love and enjoy your home, your comfort, your life, your routine? No. Again, he is simply saying that the first love of your heart needs to be God before your home, your comfort, your work, all those things. He goes on. One more example. Another said, yes, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me good say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Is Jesus saying we shouldn't love our family? Of course not. He's simply saying that the first love of our heart needs to be God and Jesus. So, you know, when that scribe came to Jesus towards the end and asked, you know, to summarize the law, what did Jesus say? He said, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's saying the heart of the law is not these requirements, it's about who we love and how we love. And so when our loves are misplaced, that's when our external actions begin to break specific commandments. If we love money more than we love God, that is when we might covet what others have or cheat or defraud someone else to get more money or we cheat on our taxes or whatever you want to say. You know, people who don't have much money can love money more than just as much as anybody who has a lot of money. Because they can always be looking and saying, if I only had, if I only had, if I only had. If we love pleasure more than we love God, that's when we commit adultery or succumb to various addictions that because, because, begin because they give us pleasure, but then take over our lives. If we love work more than we love God, that may be when we don't take care of our families or, or we're absent or we lie or slander someone else to get ahead. When our loves are misplaced, that is when we get angry with anyone who threatens what we value, and in some cases it leads to murder or other things. If we love power more than we love God, we'll do anything to gain the upper hand and gain more control, whether it's in a family, in a church, in a business, or in government. Sin is more than just breaking a bunch of rules, even if they are God's rules. Sin is fundamentally the result of misplaced love, of not loving God and people the right way. It starts with loving God. If we love God the right way, it'll lead to wanting to love people the right way. You know, King David made some very serious mistakes in his life. Committed adultery with Bathsheba. Had her husband killed in battle. He sinned against Bathsheba and her family. He violated his responsibility as king. When David was confronted with what he did, you go read his confession in Psalm 51. In, in the middle of that psalm, he says, makes this statement. He says, against you and only, you only, God, have I sinned. Now, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the family. He sinned against his responsibilities as a king. But he phrases it, against you and you only have I sinned. And he, what he's saying is he hadn't loved God the right way. 
He loved all these other things. Sin is fundamentally a misplaced love. It's an inadequate for love for God. Now, the last question we need to ask in reference to this is, is what are the implications for how we live? You know, if we're supposed to compare ourselves to God and not to other people, and God's standard is perfection, what does that mean for how we live and approach life? If it's more than just breaking rules, but it's really about an inadequate love of God, what does it say to us today? Let me just suggest a, a couple of things real quickly. Um, if we're meant to compare ourselves to God and His standard is perfection, then we need to realize that we can ever, never earn God's approval or acceptance by what we do. We can never earn eternal life in a place in heaven. As the rich young ruler was asking Jesus what he needed to do. We can't earn a place in heaven. We don't deserve it because we can never meet God's standards. Whether we think that's fair or not, it doesn't matter. That is God's standard. We are totally dependent on God's grace and mercy. And the good news is what Jesus declared towards the end of the text where the disciples asked, who then can be saved? And he's, the context there is a rich man, but it's still a general truth. Jesus answered, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Jesus has provided everything we need. God has provided everything we needed in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and at the cross. He's provided everything we need. Second, I, I think... One of the interesting things, I think, is we're all equal in God's sight when you think about it. No one is better than us, and we are better than no one else. We're all equal in God's sight. God sees us all the same way. If we really understand the concept of sin, it, it really is the great equalizer and one of the strongest reasons to assert the equality and value of every person. We're all in the same boat. No, Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. We all fail to meet God's standards. None of us can earn God's approval. That means I'm no better than someone that looks different than me. I'm no better than someone in a different color who speaks a different language and a different socioeconomic status. I'm no better or no more value, have more value in God's sight than any other person, even though struggling with an addiction, a broken lifestyle, or who has broken the laws in prison. We are all in the same boat before God. And every person has value in God's sight, and his offer is the same to any person, regardless of their background, how we think about them, or how we perceive them. We are equally broken before God. Therefore, we should treat all people with respect. Therefore, that's why Jesus constantly says, judge not, lest you be judged. We have no right to judge, because we're imperfect. Everybody is in the same boat. I think the concept of sin and, and, and the scripture implies that is one of the greatest reasons that we should it, for argument for the equality of everyone because we're all the same before God. It doesn't matter who we are, what we've done, where we come from, or anything else. Third, even honest, moral people need Jesus. Think about this. You know, we tend to look at some people, broken people, and we can say, they need Jesus. But all around us are people who live good moral lives by human standards. But by God's standards, no one is good. So those people around us 
that try to lead good, honest lives need Jesus just as much as anyone whose life has broken and fallen apart. I think, as I think about life, I think sometimes we just forget about those around us who try to live an honest life. Do we see them that way? That they need Jesus just as much as anyone else. So the people you know around you that are, that are good, honest, hardworking people, that are kind people, you see, look at them and see and realize they need Jesus too. They need his grace and mercy because they don't meet God's standard. They're not going to earn it. It comes through being forgiven by Jesus at the cross. They all need it. Everyone needs it. Fourth, I, I think it implies that as, as we realize this, we should be continually growing in our appreciation and love of God. You know, I'm always a, a, a Meyer Apostle Paul in Romans 7 where he talks about at the end of his ministry, the things I do, I don't want to do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Because he's being very honest. And what he's really saying there is, I understand just how broken I can be, even now. The more we should and the more we understand our brokenness, the more we should appreciate his love. The more we understand how misplaced our loves can be, the more we should appreciate his mercy. The more we understand that we don't deserve his love, the more we should appreciate his grace. You know, that should be a constantly growing thing in us. Do you appreciate his love, grace, and mercy more now than you did maybe one year ago, five years ago, or ten years ago? Can you look in the mirror and say to yourself that your love, passion, and appreciation of God for all that he's done for you it continues to grow. We have some ups and downs in our lives. But as we look back, we should realize that our love and appreciation for God is, is growing stronger. You know, even as we look out and see the brokenness in the world, if we're really honest, we can look inside and see some of our own emotions and feelings and thoughts. And we can see some of that brokenness in us. That's why we started last week with the heart. God looks at the heart. You know, do you continue to marvel at just how good God really is? And how merciful and kind he is and wants to be to all people. That he wants to share his grace with everyone through Jesus. So today what I want to do is I want to close um, by reading together some of those descriptions of just how good is. Let these words kind of be our prayers of thanksgiving and just think about how good God is and who he is. Let's read these words together. The Lord is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Oh, that we as people would continue to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever, for he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry world with goodness. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. The Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. You, you, you think about all those verses, about the description of who God is. He is so incredibly good. And, and as we realize that, we just realize, think about what he's done for us and how grateful we should be. Father, I just thank you for your word. Sometimes in its simplicity, Father, Lord, we, we sometimes get 
confused, confused.